My name's Susan Marks. I teach in the law department here at LSE, and I'd like to welcome you warmly to this event as part of the LSE Literary Festival. It's jointly sponsored by the LSE Center for the Study of Human Rights and the organization Novel Rights, about which we'll be hearing uh, very shortly. Our subject today is literature, the power of literature and human rights. Can literature play a role in promoting human rights? Should literature be politically engaged? Should authors take a, a stand on social and political issues? Many of you will be familiar, I'm sure, with the work of the American philosopher Richard Rorty. Rorty spoke of the need to develop a global culture of human rights. And at the center of that global culture, he placed not philosophical investigation or court cases or even NGO reports, but rather what he referred to as sentimental education, borrowing that phrase from Flaubert. He used the term sentimental not to refer to something mawkish or sickly, but rather to refer to the affective or emotional domain of life the way in which people can be connected with the experience of distant others, and particularly the way in which that can happen through literature. He uh, alerted us to the power of literature to promote bonds of empathy and alerted us in doing so to the link uh, between literature and human rights. We'll be hearing uh, more about that today from three people who are eminently qualified to speak on the subject, two authors, and one person uh, who uh, believes deeply in the power of literature to promote human rights and is doing something quite concrete uh, to put that idea into practice. Our three speakers uh, are firstly Vered Cohen Barzile, who is the founder, or on my immediate left, who is the founder of this organization, Novel Rights, which has been... Uh, 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 created to uh, publish uh, human rights literature and develop human rights literature as a distinct genre uh, and, um, to be uh, promoted and disseminated. Vered uh, is uh, a former journalist who worked for uh, quite a while within Amnesty International, including as director of publications and communications uh, in Israel. Our second speaker... Um, uh, on uh, Vered's left is Marina Nemat, who is the author of a memoir entitled Prisoner of Tehran about her uh, experience of growing up in Iran, being imprisoned for speaking out against the regime, managing to escape a death sentence and fleeing to a new life in Canada. She was awarded the first Human Dignity Prize in 2007 uh, for her, her work as a uh, an exponent of human rights literature, and also, um, and, and sorry, and that prize uh, came from the European Parliament and the Cultural Association Europa. Our third speaker, Gabriella um, Ambrioso, um, is the author of a, a novel uh, entitled Prima di Lasciarsi, I think it might be pronounced, Before We Say Goodbye, it's been, uh, is its English translation which was inspired uh, by the true story of um, a 17-year-old suicide bomber um, in um, a 17-year-old 
Palestine, a Palestinian suicide bomber um, in Israel. Um, the, uh, the book has been used widely uh, in schools and colleges and human rights uh, uh, organizations as an educational tool. So um, before we start, if I can uh, ask people to uh, switch their mobile phones to silence so that we can not be uh, interrupted in our discussion. Our speakers will speak for about 20 minutes, uh, and then we'll have time to hear your thoughts on the subject of the power of literature and human rights. But let me now give the floor to Vered. Thank you. So hello, everybody, for coming. And uh, I want to start with just saying thank you to Zoe and for LSC for hosting us and for um, believing, uh, before I even started talking, uh, that literature has the power uh, to motivate people and to create a change. Uh, this is assumption that uh, we use as, as a basic assumption and I'm hoping that after you leave this uh, discussion you will assume this as well uh, with us. Um, so my name is Vered Cohen Barzilai. I was uh, born and, uh, and lived uh, and still living in Israel, which as part of you know is a very conflictual area. Um, I will speak a little bit about, uh, um, about how, how I reached to this uh, theory of, of human rights literature and what is it and how it's connected to uh, the theory of Jean-Paul Sartre that uh, wrote about the engaged literature. And later on... Uh, uh, my friends and colleagues and authors uh, will speak, uh, Gabriela and, and Marina, and again, it's a very good opportunity to say thank you for them uh, for coming and for joining this event. I know that it's, it's not easy to live, their, uh, to live their life and to come. Marina came from Canada, Gabriela came from Italy and very, for a very short uh, period, and she's returning to Italy uh, today. So I want to start with uh, a small story about Ruth. Uh, just a few days ago, we, I received an email from the kindergarten teacher of my young uh, daughter announcing me that Ruth, which was the nanny, she's just passed away. It was very unfortunate because we never knew that she had something. She was just passed away. Uh, she had like, back pains. And then a few days later on, she just passed away from cancer that did not uh, reveal. And... Um, I'm speaking about Ruth because uh, Ruth was uh, was very special to me. Uh, we had, uh, you know, daily dialogues when I used to come to pick up my daughter, and she always used to ask me, "Where do you came from? How was your last trip to uh, UK?" And she was very interested in, you know, hearing about my traveling and my husband traveling. And she always dreamed that she would travel as well. Uh, she used to be in London just one time in her life, but she couldn't come back because it was too expensive. Uh, she was a nanny, but she never wanted to be a nanny. It was just what life pushed her to do. She had a lot of dreams, but she never fulfilled her dreams. And unfortunately, she died without the ability or without me trying to convince her that she can, do, she can live her life differently. And she can fulfill her dreams, and it doesn't matter how old you are, what is your age, from where are you coming. I mean, dreams are meant that us will be able to, uh, to fulfill them. Uh, at the same time, Ruth has passed away. Uh, 
other location in the world, a uh, person named Stefan Hessel, maybe you heard about him, uh, he died, he was a French author, uh, he belonged to Resistance, the uh, French movement, and he was the one of the few people that drafted the UDHR, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, Hessel wrote in 2000, uh, he wrote a story, uh, it was uh, a manifest, uh, in which in English it called um, Time for Outrage. Since he was a member of the resistance that resisted the Nazi occupation, and uh, he uh, helped with his friends to... Um, establish a new uh, moral rules, not just to the world, and also to France. And in 2000, he felt that uh, those moral rules that they fought and paid for their lives are being broke. Uh, he felt that uh, he needed to do something and to call all the young people out there to save, to guard those moral rules. Of course, the 30 rights that been on the Declaration of the Human Rights were uh, the rules that he believed in, the moral rules that he believed in. And um, his uh, uh, manifest was translated into many, many languages, more than 30 languages, and sold more than 2 million copies. What's more important is that in France it motivated the young people to go out in the street and to make the social revolution. Or the, uh, and also in the US uh, the Occupy Wall Street was, movement was created. Everything was created with the inspiration of, the, uh, of his writing. I think that um, when, uh, before he died, Hessel, he died very peacefully, he was uh, more than 90. Before he died, um, he gave an interview to an Israeli newspaper and he talked a little bit about his friend Jean-Paul Sartre that uh, he met when he was 17, he just started to read Sartre books. And um, he quoted Sartre by saying, you must devote your responsibility you become a human being only when you feel responsible. I think that uh, this is something that I was not able, unfortunately, to explain to Ruth. Because I do think that once we accept on ourselves the responsibility, not just on our life, but on other people's life out there in the world, uh, we become stronger and we find the tools to help us to change our way and to demand social change and human rights for all. And I think that um, it's really, um, I, I'm, I want to, to call all of you here um, to use like a wake-up call that it is time for us not uh, to give away our power that we all have as individuals, but also as a community, to change our life and to change other people's lives is most important. I think it's a wake-up call, so we will never uh, leave this world with 
the feeling that we have no power and we have no hope. And I think that uh, if I'm thinking about novel rights, what drove me to establish novel rights was to give people hope and to give them the starting point that there is a hope and there is a way to change the world. Um, so, um, uh, in the same time that the UD UDHR was created, uh, Sartre published uh, a book under the name uh, What is Literature? in which he explained a little bit about uh, the engaged literature. And I have to say, I have to give, give credit for Charles E. Whiting that I'm using his essay. Uh, he's from Yale University and he's explaining uh, very uh, briefly about Sartre's book, but I can, you know, I, I really recommend you to read this book. I think that it's a very fascinating book. So, a few points. Um, why literature? Why authors? And why, especially when I'm calling you to wake up, I'm especially focusing on authors. Um, I will read a little bit, uh, just a few parts, so I can speak about them a while. Sartre is addressing himself to those of us who believe that the great social and political questions of our time should be the concern of every member of the society. He writes, as one sincerely convinced that we can no longer effort to ignore such problems, but must seek to meet them face to face and to contribute in whatever way we can for their solution. Now, let's speak a little bit about Sartre and why I'm focusing uh, on him. Um, Sartre, Albert Camus, and uh, Simone de Beauvoir, and many other French uh, philosophers and authors, uh, I think that they uh, were born and, and uh, um, wrote in a very, the most difficult, challenging period in the modern life. Uh, Sartre uh, was born before World War I, and when he was uh, young, he... Um, uh, his uh, country was uh, under the Nazi occupation. He, he himself, when he joined the army, forced to join the army, uh, was uh, captured by the Nazi army. Um, I think it was, it was most difficult because back then most of the societies that did not follow the Nazi uh, government believed that there is no hope. There is no way to change what the Nazi has forced on, on, the, on the world. Um, but, and for that matter, uh, the population, and mostly the author's population, were divided into three uh, groups. The authors, they thought that there is no hope and there is nothing to be done, and they forced themselves silence. They didn't write anything, they neglected their uh, responsibility as writers. And the other group was the one that used as a propaganda for the Nazi regime. And the other group is the Sartre group that created the resistance and resisted the Nazi and what they tried to educate the society. I think that uh, by thinking about that, by thinking about the challenges that Sartre needed to face, 
I think it was more difficult, and you know, I'm coming for a very conflict uh, country. Just uh, two months ago, I was walking in the street, and missile was just uh, almost landing uh, near me. It was just you know, in the skies, almost landing in near me. But thinking about you know the people, not just the Jewish, but all the community that was. Uh, victim of the uh, of the Nazism, I think that uh, my challenges are minor to what they had to face. So when I'm reading uh, what Sartay is saying, and when I'm reading about uh, the fact that he thinks that we are all responsible, I think that I can I cannot argue with him because we are. If he felt responsible, if he risked his life in order to um, to promote the idea or the idea of freedom or freedom of mind, freedom of expression and social uh, change, then who am I to not to follow him? Um, so why do I think that uh, why do you think that authors are the one that need to uh, be the first one to, to lead this social change? <laughs> First, I think that uh, most of us are very tired from politicians. So it can be a good change that someone else will take the lead. I'm not saying that politicians do not have a major role, they have. But sometimes we need to start from the bottom. And uh, during Sartre's time when he operated, the authors were the intellectuals that really led uh, social change. And I think that nowadays authors forgot their responsibility also to be leaders. And I think that um, by not engaging themselves, by not engaging their novels, their books, their memoirs to social change, they are really neglecting their, their responsibility. And they are bringing themselves a very difficult life in which they experience now. Um, so I want to read uh, another paragraph. Those who attack engaged literature today are manifesting against the old desire to retreat into a private shell and to ignore event, events which may someday reach into their life. They are trying vainly to isolate themselves from a reality we all know exists. And in demanding novels, which are also cut off from social problems, they ask for a literature to share escapism. All novels, whatever else they may do, inventorily instruct us on life. But the engaged novels tell us that they may be related this knowledge or not to whatever spare of reality we choose, whenever and however we wish. Sartre's old thesis is that we cannot meet reality on our own terms. The Second World War, World War became a part of our lives without our choosing. Those, the businesses of the novelist today, is to concern himself with the contemporary social and political problems because they are a part of the reality which is forced on each of each and one of us. And since those problems demand specific and immediate action, the novel must require it and that we cope with them now and in a certain way. 
the novel, novel which always presented the reader with the knowledge of a real life is changing the form of its presentation in order to accord with the truer conceptions and of their relations between the individuals and the reality. I think that, uh, I imagine that you thought a little bit about literature and human rights. And uh, I, I, I assume that uh, always when I'm asking people, can you think of, of a novel that inspire you? Uh, most of them choose To Kill the Mockingbird. Some of them uh, choose Beloved. And there are many, many authors and novels that uh, we think about them that influence us very strongly. They said that uh, uh, there were novels... Oh, uh, one of the theories that uh, that novels created human rights, that it's been created firstly through the authors, and after that by the uh, by the people who drafted the, the UGR, UDHR. So I need to finish up, but I have a lot to, a lot a lot to say more. But I think that uh, um, I, I just want to a little bit explain to you what we are doing in, in novel rights and why it's important. So I just explained to you about the duty of the responsibility of the authors and also the, the responsibility of its readers how to take action. What we are trying to do in novel rights was the... What we are trying to do in novel rights is that uh, to combine both of them. So the first story that we created was uh, Marina's story. And um, she was very kind to support novel rights from, from the beginning. And she wrote a very powerful story named Leila uh, that uh, explaining a little bit about women's rights in Iran. Uh, what we are doing in novel rights is that first we choose the stories, but we never tell the, uh, the writers what to write. We never ask them to write something. We're just collecting the story that they already wrote with their inner understanding after they took responsibility of themselves by becoming uh, um, novels and uh, novels that are connected to the daily life. And after, we read, after you read about the story, you have the ability, sorry, you have the ability to uh, get more knowledge about what's going on in the real world. Oh, it's a long story. Okay. Uh, this is how Marina wrote a little bit about the connection between literature and human rights, which you'll explain a little bit uh, later on. And then uh, we wrote the biography of Marina, which is, she will explain in a while uh, after I will finish talking. And uh, so, you are all inspired, and you will be inspired from this, uh, from this uh, very short uh, story. You are all inspired, and you want to do something. And you finally are starting to feel that you need to do something, and you can do something. So, there we are, you know, presenting you with the ability how to do it. Um, we are giving you the ability to learn a little bit about human rights violation in Iran. People sometimes do not know about human rights violation that's happening not in their countries. Later on, we are giving you the opportunity to take action. And this is the most important thing. You don't, we don't need to do too much in order to help people. 
Sometimes it's just one signature. Just, you can just click, be connected, and help citizens in Iran to be uh, out of jail. Uh, I know that Aung San Suu Kyi visited LSE. She was uh, many years, three decades, in house arrest. When she went outside, she said that she heard something, that people are doing something for her. But uh, when it, it gave her the strength to keep on being on house arrest for so many years and get outside and start, you know, completing what she couldn't complete because she was forcedly uh, out of the whole political uh, ideas and career. So I, I don't want to speak too much because I don't want to take Marina in the real time, but I just want you to remember one thing. And I want you to remember uh, Ruth and the fact that she died without hope. And I want you to remember that there is always a hope and there is always a choice not to be victim and to help other people in order to uh, be free and equal as the UDHR is allowing us. Well, I better stand up because um, I'm very short, so <laughs> it's good uh, to actually be able to see you. Uh, thank you so, so much for your time. I'm going to jump right in. I don't want to go over time, and I have a lot of ground to cover. Um, how many of you have read any of my books? If you have, raised your hand. Okay, um, minority. Okay, so I have to cover some ground so that you actually understand why is it that I'm standing here. It's... Um, I was kind of forced into the situation. It wasn't exactly my choice. Uh, I was uh, born in 1965 in Tehran, Iran, and back then Iran was not an Islamic republic. We had a king. We called him the Shah. I grew up in a Christian, non-political family in Tehran. Uh, we owned uh, two apartments. Well, we didn't own them. We rented two apartments in downtown Tehran uh, on Shah Avenue. And in one of them, my dad taught ballroom dancing. Yeah, ballroom dancing in Tehran. And my mom had a beauty salon. So I literally grew up between the sounds of the cha-cha and the tango and women with really big poofy hair. <laughs> and uh, that was my life. And we owned a cottage by the Caspian Sea where I spent my summer, uh, summers when I got a little older. The summer right before the revolution, 1978. Uh, we would take a, our boom boxes to the beach and we would be dancing to the tunes of the BGs. Every Thursday night I watched the Donnie and Marie Osmond show and every Friday night I watched A Little House on the Prairie dubbed into Farsi. And at the time women, according to the secular laws that we had in Iran, the laws were not perfect, but what they did, they allowed women to do um, the same things that men could do. A woman could become a judge in Iran, according to the law. A woman could even become the prime minister. Um, I wasn't from a rich family, a middle-class family, and I had hopes of going to medical school. And as long as you were a good student and you could pass the entrance exam, schools were free at the time in Iran. Even university was free. And my plan was to... Um, basically um, study, study hard, uh, become medical doctor, marry Donnie Osmond, and live happily ever after. <laughs> so that was the plan. And um, of course, even though when I was growing up, I was just immersed in the popular culture. And I was reading Jane Austen and C.S. Lewis and Ernest Hemingway, and I was into music and very much into boys. Uh, 
But the truth was that we didn't have any political freedom in Iran. But to be honest with you, at the age of 13, that didn't matter to me at all. All I cared about was Donny Osmond, and I had, you know, the hope of marrying him one day. So this is all that mattered to me. And then the revolution happened. The revolution succeeded in 1979. We basically got back from the cottage from a beautiful holiday on the Caspian Sea, and there was a tank parked at my door. I had never seen a tank before. I asked my mom, uh, is there a movie shoot? They're, they're shooting a movie, right? And she said, no, I think it's real. And it was real. Uh, the street would fill with angry demonstrators yelling death to America, death to Israel, death to left and right, and basically death to everybody. And there was so much anger on the streets of Tehran. And I had never seen this anger before. I mean, to me, the people of Iran were the happy cha-cha dancing and you know, women going to the beauty salon and getting pretty. So for me, it was very hard to understand this anger on the streets of Tehran. I was 13 years old. So I asked an 18-year-old friend of mine, and he said that, well, the Shah is a dictator. And I, had, I didn't even know what the word dictator meant. So he explained to me that if you speak against the government, you're going to be arrested, maybe even tortured and executed. And this was news to me. I had no idea. A lot of times when you live in a closed society, you don't even know that you live in a closed society. So the revolution succeeded. I'm not, this is not a historical lesson. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have read about it. Ayatollah Khomeini had become the leader of the revolution and the left and the right and the liberals and the Marxists and the uh, literate and the non-literate, everybody supported him and the revolution in Iran succeeded. And this revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini, had promised the people of Iran freedom and democracy, but of course that's not what they got. And right now, if you look at the world, we have all these movements all over the world. Do you really think that Egypt is right now free and happy, it is an absolute democracy? Or do you think the same thing is happening in Libya? Is Libya a democracy now? Or maybe Tunisia? No. We have to remember that revolutions are like flash floods. They are like tsunamis. And to contain the energy of that revolution, it is not an easy task. And a lot of times, this power, this energy causes, can, has the potential of causing more damage than it can cause good. And that is a possibility that we cannot ignore because history has shown us that this is indeed a possibility. And this is what happened in Iran. In Iran, we, you know, the schools had been shut down, we go back to class, and at the beginning it was great. I mean, for a few months, usually after any revolution, because the old laws, they are out the window. And the new laws, they are not being written yet, they are being written, so you have a period of a few months, maybe a year, where anything goes, anybody can do anything, any can, anybody can say anything, there are various newspapers being published, the writers, they are getting engaged, they are writing, they are discussing. But in the meantime, let's not forget that there are people out there who are sitting down and they're writing those laws. And that's exactly what happened in Iran as well. And those laws that were being written, they were based on Sharia law. I'm not going to get into detail about it. We don't have the time. I would have loved to do it for you. But just to give you an example, according to Sharia law, the testimony of a woman is worth half of a man. You know, a society that is based on the testimony of a woman being worth half of a man. Can it really be democratic? That would be a good discussion to have. So in Iran, things, after a few months, began to go downhill. 
Now, I'm going to give you a footnote here. Um, horror in history doesn't happen overnight. It's not that you go to bed tonight and tomorrow you have Hitler, Stalin, Mao, or Khomeini for that matter on your hands. It happens little by little. Now, how does it happen? By the way, Hitler did not happen in the Middle East. Hitler happened in a democracy. In Germany, there was a democratic process in place. So yes, we sit down here and we talk about Hitler and the horrible things that he did, and rightfully so. But let's not forget that as a citizen of that country, wherever this horror is unfolding, you have a voice. And then if you don't speak up, once that voice is taken away from you, good luck taking it back. So the same thing happened in Iran. And by the way, there has been a lot of discussion. I have to write actually an article on my way back to Canada about the nature of evil. <coughs> have you ever thought about it? What is the nature of evil? Is evil something that lands from planet Mars and comes to our world and invades our bodies of some sort of an alien presence? No, it is not. Evil exists in me and evil exists in you. And we need to understand this concept because if we pretend that there is no, if I pretend there is no evil in me, that means I'm not going to be able to control it. That means I'm not going to be able to take responsibility for it. Knowledge brings responsibility. Once you're aware of something, once you are aware that evil does indeed live among us, that is when you can control it. So in Iran, things went downhill and we began to lose our personal freedoms. Not only we didn't gain any political freedoms, but we lost our personal freedoms. Dancing became illegal, singing became illegal, wearing your, uh, holding your boyfriend's hand in public became illegal. And I'm sure you have heard about the American hostages in Iran. I mean, everybody knows about them. But do you know, did you know that right after that hostage taking in Iran, there were thousands of young people, and I was just one of them. There were thousands of young people as early as 1980 in Iran who protested against the taking away of our personal liberties and the fact that we had not gained any new political freedoms. But all journalists had been expelled from Iran. There was no Facebook, there was no internet. The news about us on the streets of Tehran being attacked by the newly formed Revolutionary Guard, being shot at, 15, 16-year-olds dying on the streets of Tehran didn't get out. But I was there, and I saw it happen. Then the wave of arrest began in 1981. The first girl was arrested from my school. Her name was Shahnush Behzadi. Well, she was 15 when she was arrested. Went to school one day. She wasn't there, and we all talk, talked among ourselves, and we found out she had been arrested. And we all said, oh, it can't be too serious. I mean, how bad can it get? Oh, that is a stupid question to ask. How bad can it get? It can get bad, and it can get bad really quickly. So every day you would go to school, and there would be a desk empty. Every day you would go to school, and somebody would be missing. And everybody said, including me, we all said, oh, come on, how bad can it get? Like, she's 15. What are they going to do to her? Well, I was arrested on January 15, 1982. I was 16. I was about to take a bath, and the doorbell rang, and my mom called my name, and I go out of the bathroom, and there are two guns pointed in my face. I had grown up dancing to the BGs, and now there were two guns pointed in my face. I wasn't even really political. Yeah, I wanted to dance and sing and be happy, but I mean, that was that. 
And people have asked me, were you scared? No, I was not. And that is not because I'm brave. I'm not brave at all. But fear is a luxury. For example, I'm afraid of cockroaches. If I see a cockroach, I'm not talking about British or Canadian cockroaches. They are nice. But I'm talking about, I'm talking about Middle Eastern cockroaches. I don't know if you have been introduced to them. Okay, this big. If I see one of those crawling here, I'm going to scream and run and never, ever come back to London. That is how scared I am of these things. So, that is fear. But you have grown up reading Jane Austen and living a normal life and now there are two guns pointed in your face. What are, you going to, what are you going to do, scream and run? I don't think so. You are going to enter a state of shock. A state of shock is like body armor. You put it on and it protects you against emotion, not against bullets. You become emotion-proof. So I was looking at the guards, and they were arresting me, and my mom and dad were crying. And I'm looking at them, and I'm thinking, why are you crying? No big deal. I'm getting arrested. And they took me north to a prison, which was built during the time of the Shah. And it was supposed to be shut down with the revolution. It became bigger and stronger. And I was taken in, made to sit down, taken for interrogation. You know, I cannot get into all the details, but they are all in my books as I remember them. And... Then they were not satisfied with the answers I gave them, so they took me to another room, and they took off my blindfold, everybody's blindfolded upon arrival at Evin Prison. It is a compound. It's, a lot of it is underground, and it has many buildings. So um, they took me to this other room, and they took off my blindfold. I was in a room with two men, Ali and Hamid, and um, they continued questioning me and yelling at me, and then they handcuffed me, and when they handcuffed me, they realized my hands are going to slide out of the cuffs because I was 16 and 90 pounds, and the handcuffs were not adjustable. So they, they put both of my wrists together, and they put the two wrists in one cuff, and as it clicked, I literally heard my right wrist crack. And the torture had not even begun yet. So they tied me to the bare wooden bed. I was lying down on my stomach, and they lashed the soles of my feet with a length of cable. Favorite method of torture in the Middle East. Why? Because your nerve ends are in your feet. With every strike, your nervous system explodes, and then it's magically put back together, and you're wide awake for the next, and the next, and the next. I don't know what it, how it does what it does, but... I was trying to count the strikes, and I don't know, really. Maybe I made it to five or six or seven, and that was that. I couldn't count. I couldn't think. If the devil appeared to me in that room and said, Marina, sell me your soul, whatever, whatever, anything, anything on the planet, I would have done it to go home and sleep in my bed. The problem was that. Those men were yelling at me, and they were beating me, and they were not even giving me breathing room. They were not even giving me the opportunity to come up with, with a big fat lie, because I wasn't even quite sure what they wanted from me. Because the information they seemed to, write, to want from me, I didn't have. So I really didn't know what to tell them. And torture is, is used widely all over the world. And the people who use torture, they are going to tell you that it is designed to get information. It is not. Torture is designed to break the human soul. 
when they succeed, they stop. They don't succeed, you will die. And usually not under torture. Torture is not designed to kill you. There are more economical ways to kill people. They want to kill you, they will execute you. Torture is hard work. So they kept beating me, beating me. When they stopped and I sat up, I looked at my feet and I laughed my head off. Why? Because my feet looked like birthday balloons with toes on them. I couldn't understand how the human body can swell this much. So they gave me a death sentence. It was reduced to life in prison in a courtroom. I, in a court I never attended. By the way, they beat people, then they make them walk, then they beat them again, then they make them walk. Why? Because the walking makes the swelling go down. If they don't do that, your skin would break very quickly and you will die from bleeding and infection. They are not trying to kill you, remember? So they sent me to the cell block in each cell instead of five people that we had during the time of the Shah. There were 50, 60, or 70 people. In the middle of the first night, I woke up. I was in a cell in 246 section of Ibn prison with 60 other girls. And I sat up and I looked around me. I needed to go to the bathroom. And the bathroom was down the hallway. So I had to cross the cell and then walk down the hallway. And I looked around me, and it was impossible, because, because there were people sleeping so close to each other, there was no room between them to put your foot on the floor. So I waited for dawn for the call for prayer, and then there were 300 people in bathroom line ahead of me. And you're standing in line and waiting to go to the bathroom, and names are being announced over the loudspeaker, so and so and so, come to the office, and the people who are being called, they are being taken for torture, interrogation, and maybe even execution. If your name is called, go and go quickly and don't fuss, because if you do, they could come and shoot you right here. Go. And the rest of us, we are standing in line, and what are we doing? We are talking. 90% of us under the age of 20. 90 9-0 in the 80s in Ebin prison under the age of 20. We did what young girls do best, we talked. And what did we talk about? It was social justice or no? That didn't end well. We talked about everything that makes you human. I discovered my humanity in a bathroom line in Ebin prison. It is the memory of the people that you love and remembering the fact that there are people out there who love you. But guess what? You are in a place between life and death where it seems very obviously that nobody gives a damn what happens to you. And that, in a way, is the heart of the matter. That there are so many people right now, as we are sitting here, in this world who have been forgotten who have been forsaken, who have been just given to a painful, horrific death. The girl I was before Evin prison died somewhere in there. The person I have become is a witness. I'm not the perfect witness, no, but I am a witness. No more, no less. I carry the memories of every girl who stood in, the, in, in a bathroom line with me. Shahnoush, the girl I told you, my friend who was arrested before I was, she was executed before I was even arrested. I had an email a few days ago from a friend of mine in Iran still, and she was also in prison, and she 
just wrote a one-liner on Facebook to me. She said, Marina, don't let her be forgotten. It's been many years. Shahnoush was executed in 1981. And we are st still struggling to make sure that her name is heard, that her story is known and remembered as the beautiful 15-year-old full of life that she used to be. So there were many forms of torture in Evin prison. We had rape. Yes, it was, quite, it was very common. I was married off to one of the guards, and this was the way of legitimizing it. So basically, I, I was 17. So basically, this guy came to me and said, listen, you're going to be here forever and nobody cares. So if you become my wife, your life is going to get a little bit better in the prison, but if you don't, I will arrest your parents. You know, I put two and two together, and I thought, if he arrests my parents, I wouldn't have a home to go back to after this nightmare ends. And I believed it would end, because if I didn't believe it, I would have died. And I wouldn't be standing here today. So I was being raped over and over in the 209 section part of Evin prison. And it was legal. There was nothing I could do about it. And this man took me on short leaves of absence to visit his family, and I expected his mom to be the evil stepmother from Cinderella, but this little woman opened the door, and she took me in her kitchen, and all of the food in her fridge appeared on the table in front of me, and she was human. She was kind, she was generous, she was just an average mother. She was nicer than my own mom. And I couldn't understand, how can this woman produce a torturer as a son? I was forced to convert to Islam. They changed my name. One day I looked around me, I had lost my freedom, my name, my dignity, everything. How much more can you take away from a human being? But I understood when I thought about it when I was in solitary confinement, as all of this was happening, that you know what? Victimhood is not a perpetual state. The tables turned for my, my torturer that I told you about. He had been a prisoner in Evin prison himself during the time of the Shah. He had been tortured himself, and now today he was a torturer. So I realized the tables will turn for me as well. I mean, they turned for him. So somebody will put a length of cable in my hand one day and say, go for it. Go get your justice. It's really revenge, but we call it justice. What is my answer to that question? I realize that your real identity has nothing to do with your name or your religion or your family, where you're from, or whether you have been raped or tortured or not. Doesn't matter. Your identity has to do with that length of cable. If when the day comes, I pick up that length of cable, I cease to be a victim or a survivor. Because from a victim, you become a survivor. And I become a torturer. Is that what I want to be? There is a dragon out there. I call it the dragon. Because to me, I need to visualize evil. And I have grown up, just like you reading all our fairy tales. To me, there is a dragon out there. And this dragon cannot be slain with a sword. If you pick the sword and stab the dragon in the heart, you will become one of his heads. And this is what novel rights is trying to do. It is trying to fight the dragon. I fight the dragon in various ways, but for me, the image 
that comes to my mind when I think about fighting the dragon of violence is that lone man in Tiananmen Square. What you do in front of this monster of evil, violence, torture, intimidation is that you stand your ground and you look at it straight in the eye. And it will try to kill you. Who are we trying to kid? It will try to grab you. It will try to torture you. It will torture you. It will try to discredit you. It will try to tell you, oh no, it never happened. In a way, it will try to tell you that you never existed. That you don't even exist even though you're standing there. And here is where literature comes in. Because literature is a way for people like me, for people like you, to document, to give the human experience to the next generation. To make sure that the memory of girls like Shahnoush will not be lost. And knowledge is not enough. I'm giving you this knowledge. But the question is, what are you going to do with it? There are many ways to use this knowledge. So I will leave it up to you to use your imagination, to use the talents that you have, and to get as involved as is humanly possible. Because you know what? Tomorrow might be too late. Thank you so much. I apologize for my English, first of all. I have to apologize for my pronunciation. I'll try to speak very slowly so to be better understood. And I apologize because I have a problem in understanding your pronunciation. So please, in the debate, speak slowly so I can understand. Okay? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Well, I have been invited here to talk to you about my experience as a writer in this case about my book, uh, Before We Say Goodbye, that is uh, inspired to a true story of a suicide bombing uh, happened in Jerusalem in 2002, and about my participation in an anthology uh, inspired to the, the declaration of a human rights. But first of all, please, let me just a couple of minutes to talk to you about another author and another book. The book is Limonov by the French writer uh, Emmanuel Carrère. What has a book such as Limonov uh, and uh, writers such as Carrère have to do with the conference uh, about the relationship between uh, promotion of human rights and literature? Well, Carrère is not uh, my favorite writer, but he is one who transforms very well the world into literature. And this is a very interesting basis for what we have to say. Limonov is a bestseller, okay, but I'll tell you briefly what it is about. Limonov uh, is uh, the biography of a real person. I think that I can connect very well with uh, the, what uh, Marina told, uh, told about uh, the evil inside uh, uh, every one of us. Uh, Limonov uh, was born in, um, in uh, 1943, the son of uh, a member of the Cheka, later known as KGB. He was a young hooligan in Ukraine. 
then an underground poet. Then, after which we find him as a champ in Manhattan. And then the valet, the mistakenly trusted valet of a millionaire. Then he was a fashionable writer in Paris, then a combatant in the Balkans with the Serbian commander Arkan, the war criminal. Now he is in Moscow. He is the founder of a party which defines itself National Bolshevik, in other words, both fascist and communist. Uh, spent some years in prison, had a great many women and also some uh, extemporary homosexual uh, but uh, rather intense uh, homosexual experiences. So, this, all this is Limonov, okay? Let's see what Carrer does. Carrer uh, doesn't bother to arouse the reader's sympathy. He simply shows us Limonov. But as someone wrote in this book, Limonov, rather than an emperor with no clothes, is a subject rent apart, guts and bile. His heart is like a graph. As soon as Carrer uh, senses that uh, readers are, uh, become, uh, are about to be taken with Limonov, he stops them in their tracks to remind that he was a bastard. But when he senses that readers are about to look down on this bastard, he does the opposite, making them realize that weakness is human to human. And that uh, all of us have fearsome dilemmas inside us. And uh, we can coexist with any decision and any consequence and that uh, sooner or later all of us have become uh, have been Limonov or would have liked to be him because we are all hungry for life so Limonov is not an hero and Carrer takes care not to make him one Limonov is the banality of good and evil in a single person. And this is what I'd like to, to get at, character. I want to get at the importance of characters in uh, literature that are neither good nor uh, evil. Limonov is a bit good and a bit bad, like most of us. And the meaning, the, the profound reason that is behind the Declaration of Human Rights is to give all human beings a dignity. To any human being, just because uh, he's a human or she's a human. So the same, uh, the good let literature good, the uh, does the same thing. It gives dignity to any human being. Thanks to literature, we can understand the humanity of a limon of the bastard. When I talk about literature in this context, I am talking about the modern novel, because it's with the great literature of the 19th century that we begin to encounter a certain kind of character. It's with Dostoevsky that characters become a contradictory bundle of bad and good qualities that can't be reduced to anything else, that the characters become who we really are.
in whom we can automatically recognize. Oh, I mean, we, we identify also in Don Quixote, but it's a, a cerebral, a, a, an ideal identification with a certain human type. When we read Don Quixote, we, we, we remain standing uh, on the threshold. When we read, for example, Anna Karienina, we move together with her. Our spirit moves together with her. Because when we read, we set in motion some animal mechanism. And even more so when we write, we work on primordial mechanism. Something that leads the writer and the reader to dance, to dance together without any, either, either of them, without understanding what they are doing. But at the end of the dance, when the book is closed, the world presents itself open. Limonovs, guts and arteries. Open at the same time whole. Because literature succeeds in recomposing the chaos of life into meaning. Something for which we sadly have words. And in fact, before we say goodbye, my novel before we say goodbye, um, uh, as being sponsorized and strongly supported by Amnesty International in the Middle East, in the English language uh, worldwide, and in France. This book is inspired to a true story, suicide bombing in Jerusalem. The two main characters are two young girls, 18 years old. One is uh, the, um, the Palestinian suicide bomber. The other is an Israeli victim. Well, these two young girls look so alike that immediately after the suicide bombing, Israeli TV reported that the two, the two attackers were dead and that they were two sisters. And it's amazing that such a, I, I say, such a scandalous story because it forces the reader to take a look in the mirror recognize that the victim and her killer are aspects of each other. Such a story found both an Arab and an Israeli publisher and is on the eve of the last Gaza war. Clearly, both people found in the book a piece of their humanity identified with characters, making, recognizing this similarity, their own, this sisterhood, and that's no mean importance. And this is what Vered Cohen Barzilai calls the tremendous power of literature. And inspired her to found this very special project named uh, Novel Rights. And I'm very happy and proud and grateful that one of the things set in motion by my novel is this special project, Novel Rights, that in its turn is a powerful call to action. But but, to what extent is a writer aware or ought to be aware of this tremendous power he has? In my opinion, every good novel has a form of intelligence that deviates from that of its author. 
every good novel is more intelligent than its author, in my opinion. I, I, I think perhaps no writer is ever aware of everything he has written. The novel is not a straight line. And once, there, there is always, always a residual part that is not under the control of the writer. And once it's written, the novel is no longer the property of its author, it's the property of the reader. The novel works on its own two feet inside of the reader and goes off about its own business. One example. Before we say goodbye, it has been translated in a many, many languages. In South Korea, for example, young Koreans, you know, uh, young Koreans just now are emerging on the world scene, so they don't know anything about the Middle East. They experience this novel, this story, as illustrative of the separation of their own country, North and South. And this might... Uh, seems strange because their history is totally different uh, from that of Israelis and Palestinians. You know, my, my book is uh, stuffed, can I say, stuffed of, uh, of, yeah, of uh, refugee camps, uh, Jerusalem Est, the colonies, uh, occupied territories, uh, and the Holocaust, and Europe. They don't have anything of this. But when we read this story, they relieve the sorrow the grief, the separation from a part of their, of their history, of the history of, their, of themselves, of the history of their fathers. And so, at the same time, they grasp the guts and the arteries of their suffering and that of the Middle East. Hmm? Because every reader finds in a novel resonances that only he or she can hear something that put them in connection with a part of themselves that make them go straight to the heart of their world. This is why power fears a novel. This is why the novel is the form of art most subject to censorship, prohibition, persecution from all the dictatorships, uh, religious dictatorships, central uh, right wing, uh, left wing, in uh, close or half-closed societies, uh, the art of the, the, the novel is underdeveloped. As soon as it develops, it induces people to think about their own lives. Because every good novel open, opens uh, windows in the reader. So much so that if you are good readers... Sooner or later, so you'll wonder if, in the idea you have of the world, whether book read count for more than actual experiences. Because novels uh, take you, takes you in places uh, you have never been physically and maybe never will and make you uh, meet and know people you otherwise never uh, will meet and know. And you cannot lead uh, lots of a life. There is not the, neither the time nor the opportunity. But the novels make you live many lives. Novel can even make you meet and understand your opposite 
and also make you meet and understand the opposite that is inside you. But let's get back to the writer's responsibility. Because once a novel takes its leave, it uh, abandons the writer's word to enter that of the reader, but it starts from the writer's word. Talking about me, sometimes I think about that uh, distinction that Frederick Schiller in the, at the end of the 18th century made, suggested. He suggested a distinction between naive writer and sentimental writer. Maybe today better uh, we'd say reflective writers maybe, but uh, they were on the eve of the romanticism. So sentimental writer. Well, the, the former, the naive writer, were all nature. They write, uh, are all nature. They write uh, almost without thinking what they are uh, doing, uh, without worrying about the consequences, uh, educational, uh, ethical consequences of their words, and without paying any heed to what uh, uh, other might say. Conversely, the sentimental writer is extraordinarily aware of uh, what he writes, the techniques uh, he uses, and pays attention to the ethical, educational, uh, intellectual uh, principles. Well, I think that every writer has a hero manner, hero blend. Also, every writer... Uh, every writer has her word, but also has uh, her motivation to write. We write because uh, we want to be artists, or to entertain you, or to amaze you, or to flee from our own private torments. Or we write because we are trying to understand the world. So, when Amnesty International asked me to contribute to an anthology called uh, Freedom, titled Freedom, inspired, uh, uh, contrib to contribute with a short story inspired to an article of a Declaration of Human Rights, I took part because I was full of anger about something that was happened some years uh, before, a few years before in my country, Italy. When, I don't know if you remember, but you know, surely, uh, thousands of uh, young people of at least ten different nationalities were tortured in a barracks. And in Italy we don't have a law against torture. Well, this, uh, this uh, anger of mine, this shame, led to the birth of Stico. The story of a um, 20 years old, 20 year old boy who learns how to disappear into the surrounding, not to be there anymore, camouflaging himself as a certain insect do. This anger, this wound is, uh, of mine is what uh, Schiller names nature which is blended with ethics, with uh, discipline. My discipline is not in the content, in my case. The content comes from my nature. My discipline, my ethics concern the language, the attention that I pay to the language I use. 
form that becomes a substance because writers use words like bricks or like bullets. So they must be careful how they use them. I come from a country where a very vulgar power for 30 years uh, by now has almost monopolized all the management of the media, TV, press, publishing houses, in short, communication and culture. And every day steals words from people. It befouls the words, manipulates them, abuses them, alters them radically to the point that it robs them from all authentic meaning. And I said just now that the novel opens a word because it gives the word with which interpret it. So the words that mean things ought to be accurate, honest, clean, because if you give the right word to the right thing, you won't get the meaning wrong, and you won't get wrong about the value of a thing. I read somewhere that the task of good fiction is to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. I agree with this, and there is more. I believe in literature as a rebellion against order and as the creation of a new possible world. And so I conclude by quoting another novel and another author, completely different from the which I began this speech. The novel is uh, The Continental Drift, a masterpiece by the American Russell Banks. A book brings me with pity, with uh, grief and rage for the injustice of the false American dream. I wish to read for you the last lines of this magnificent, powerful book. The last lines of this novel are sabotage and subversion are the goals of this book. Go, my book, and help destroy the world as it is. Wow, so we've heard from, about activism, experience and the novel. We've had many themes put on the table. The Sartrean concept of engaged literature, the complexity of victimhood, and finally we've heard about why power fears literature, the subversive, mobilizing character of literature. We have about 15 minutes to explore these and other themes. Uh, I'm going to group questions because our time is limited. Who would like to start? Questions, reactions to what we've heard? Your thoughts on the power of literature? Yes. <coughs> Some people argue that an author should not be too aware of their own agenda because to be aware is to make something like propaganda rather than art. I wonder, Gabriella, what your thoughts are on that. Maybe, can I just, actually, can you wait a minute? We might just take, anyone else have any other comments or questions at this, at this time? No? While you're thinking, would you like to answer then? Sorry, you have to help me to, can you repeat? <laughs> Without uh, the microphone, maybe it's better for me. 
some people yeah. say if the author knows yeah. what they want to say too well, yeah. it's propaganda rather than art. And I wonder what your thoughts are on art as literature or art with political ideas. The distinction between art, literature, and propaganda, but on the I, one I, hand, and propaganda yes, I, on the other. Perhaps others might I, also want to react. Yes, I, I, I think that the, the answer is in all uh, what uh, we have said, uh, beginning from Vered and Marina and my talk. I think uh, it was uh, enough clear that uh, you, you don't... Dis- prop- I am an advertising woman. So I know what is propaganda. I know very well the difference between propaganda <laughs> and, uh, and art, uh, art and literature. Can you uh, explain I a little bit? I know some uh, some countries do use literature and art within their politics, and I wonder what thoughts you have on where the line is between. But I when I don't think that I, I find some difficulty uh, aside of the English. I, I have some difficulty in uh, tracking, in, uh, in uh, drawing a line because some concept is better to, to arrive to the concept with in, in uh, <laughs> how do you say? Um, there is not a, a line between the communication is communication. When you arrive to the strike to a person or to a concept, it depends on about uh, the, the way you arrive it and the, the oh it's so difficult for me, please <laughs> I, I think that uh, I can uh, explain what Gabriela is trying to say, and it, uh, again i 'm using the world of Sarto when uh, you know people excuse accuse this uh, theory about the engaged literatures. Uh, what if uh, it would be a propaganda? And he said that people, he trusts the readers to understand when it's propaganda and when not. And he said when it's something that it's not you know, high literature and you are not, it, when the book is good, uh, it's, it, it, it managed to engage you. When it's not good, when it's just propaganda, people notice it. Sorry, Vered, I want to add, when yeah. the book is sincere, because when I talk about when yeah. uh, Amnesty asked me to, to write uh, a story about uh, a certain content, I started from my younger. I had my motivation to write. And, it and was not because I decided I had to write this. I have this uh, need. This is exactly what Sotter is saying, that the author must be sincere when he's uh, approaching the, you know, to write the, the, the author, the novel. Uh, and, and I think that it's, it's, a, it's a very good point. Uh, as, as you could notice, this is not something, I mean, Marina experience are very, very strong and they are very sincere. You all felt when she said, when she spoke, when Gabriela spoke, there are uh, authors are engaged authors, but uh, uh, each and every one of them came from different uh, uh, different aspects of, of writing. But they were very sincere, and I think that uh, all of us felt it, their sincerity. And this is why it engages us to, to, to listen, to understand. Uh, actually, if I may just add a little bit to that, um, I believe that there is something called the spirit of the truth. I believe in it. And this spirit of the truth doesn't have so much to do with, okay, this happened on January 22nd at 10.06. Oh, no, it was 10.07. No, it was 10.06. No, it was 10.07. It has nothing to do with that. 
It has to do with the human experience, as I said. So if an author manages to express the human experience, now whether it is in the form of fiction or non-fiction, actually in a way I believe it is more difficult to deliver it in fiction because, um, you know, a fiction, I, I have written both fiction and non-fiction, and I think when I switch modes into a fiction writer, I feel even more responsible to go and research and understand all the various elements that come in. Because when I'm writing from my own personal experience, I can say, you know, it gives me authority. I can say, I was there. I felt this on my skin. This happened to me. But when you're writing as a fiction writer, well, you're creating this world. So that means great responsibility. And if you're using it as a tool to give a message to a reader, as Verit said, readers are not usually stupid. So they are going to immediately realize that, and then that's the kind of literature that's going to get flat very quickly. It's going to flatline. Also, I have to just to add something that Sartre is writing about this engaged author, and he said that he needs to be even smarter, more intellectual, more involved, more social person than any other authors. This is a new generation of authors that have uh, that must be, you know, uh, even more deeply involved in in in, in all the in writing and in, uh, things that happening in our society. So we are just, you know, trying to create something very new, not just new writing, but also new authors. Yes. Um, I'm quite interested in what you said about um, not being forgotten and keeping sort of the memory alive of what happened to you. Um, And I sort of wonder how you encounter... um, the doubt that some, you know, that what you write um, may not be received, or as you said, the knowledge will be transferred, but no one will do anything about it. It kind of reminded me of um, this scene in the film Hotel Rwanda, where the reporter sort of says, you know, oh, the images are on the news, and you know, the people will sort of look at it and, and say, oh, how terrible, and then go back to eating their dinner. Yeah. So I sort of wonder, you know, like how do you encounter, you know, that that trouble that maybe people won't actually do anything about it? That's a very, very good question. This is actually something I really had to sit down and think about because, yes, it is a very strong possibility that you're going to dedicate your life in making sure that certain atrocities are known uh, in any form, you know, whether you're a journalist, you're a writer, you're a photographer. You know, you basically dedicate your life into making sure that certain knowledge is passed on and that people take a stand and that something is going to change. You know, with the Holocaust, it was said never again. And yet every single day we are seeing that very similar things, you know, genocide, mass murder, torture. I mean, they are happening all the time. So one option for me is to look at it from that perspective and to say, well, nothing is ever going to change. But the effect of that is that I'm going to go home and never, ever stand up for anything. That would be the other option. But for me, my, you know, the the motto for me is 
I'm not trying to save the world. I'm not trying to create a worldwide revolution. I'm not trying to change the nature of human beings. None of the above. What I'm trying to do is to save one life. That's the way I look at it. If by whatever it is that I do, whether it is giving talks, writing, you name it, what I'm trying to do is to motivate others to help me and all of us together, we are going to save one life. Because there's a beautiful Jewish saying that says, if you save one life, you have saved the world. <coughs> the opposite is true as well. If you kill one person, you have killed the world. So that is what I'm trying to do. And it would be naive to think that on this path, in this process, there is not going to be any resistance. Yes, there is. There is resistance. There, is, there are various forms of resistance. But if you accept that what you are trying is not really trying to change the world, it's a much smaller scale. And you know, something else that it does that people forget is that when I go to bed at night, I'm able to sleep. I'm able to say to myself, I did everything in my power to make sure that the memory lives on. Now, whether it in reality is, it does or it doesn't, it's out of my control. I do not control the world. I wish I did, but I don't. So at the end of the day, I'm not God. Again, very unfortunately. But you know what I can do is I can control my own actions. And that is my only purpose, to control my own actions. Just, again, something to add. There are people forgotten every day all over the world. Uh, people are forgotten in China, in Pakistan, in Nigeria, in Iran. Uh, Marina know personally uh, people that are now in, in Evangel that are you know, trying to, to get free, to have freedom, to get out of there. Um, I think that the question is who determines if they are forgotten is, you know, about us. Uh, it's our responsibility to not forget them and to do something. So the question is, is coming back to us. We are the ones that need to ask that and we are the ones that need to give answers to this question. Yes, one final reaction here at the front. Do you find literature is more useful at the extremes? So in the really extreme situations where you've, you've got mass violations of human rights, or do you think there's a, still a role for it to play in the, the minor violations, the, the everyday small stuff as well? I think it's, uh, it's very useful to, to, to delve into the small violation of everyday to delve, to research in every small act of every day some violation. But this uh, can happen also if you... <laughs> it, uh, if you really, you start for a, a, a trip during your uh, writing. You are researching all, all the time you don't know without beginning to write what you are writing. You don't know. You don't decide before. You begin, and then also the same characters go for their way, and you have just to follow them. If you are inside the story, if you are sincere with yourself, you want to, to understand 
you want to understand. This is the way, I think, also answering, uh, because I am so panicked by your English that I <laughs> the answer, uh, the, the difference between art and propaganda, also essay. I write also essays. The essays is another thing. You are very lucid about what you want. You have all the frame. When you begin to write a novel, you don't have the frame, the frame before. Until the last uh, page, and maybe after, you don't understand what you have written, but because you are inside the process. I think that also, who, who am I, are we to determine you know, what's strong and what's not? I mean, there are people that evacuated from the house, the Roman uh, uh, pop, uh, population in, in, in Italy and in uh, East Europe, uh, uh, that are evacuated, that they have no rights, they are living, you know, outside of, of the law. Uh, they can't go to proper, you know, to get education, they have no schools, they have no clean water. Uh, so many people that, you know, demanded, uh, their rights are being demanded by, uh, to them. So I don't know if, uh, if only we need to speak about the right to live or to die. I think that uh, the right to live a proper life is also a very special right. And, and I think that uh, we must engage ourselves to every kind of... I'm not, I, I don't think that I want to tell you now that the answer is that all of you now join, of course, it will be nice, uh, to help Marina with her causes or to help uh, Gabriela to promote her causes. But the idea is that you will choose what you want to promote. You will choose what is the rights that you want to help defend and you do it freely. I, I, it's, if you will... You know, if literature will tell you, then it will be propaganda. And if, if it uh, specifically told you to do that or that, we are not, even when we are uh, putting the links out uh, at the end of the book, it's just a recommendation. You are freely uh, to decide what kind of action you want to, to do. You're just, you have no freedom not to take responsibility. This is the only thing that I find myself imposing on you. Marina, would you like no, to No, I agree. That? I totally agree with what was said. Absolutely, it is about choice. And as I said before, it's all about the human experience. I mean, how do you define human experience? If I drink that glass of water, that is a human experience. And if Gabriella steals my glass of water, that you know, creates another <laughs> human experience. And it is a chain. You know? And you can sit there and imagine this. Just this, this thing, you know, I'm trying to, and then Gabriella takes it away from me, and then let's say Barrett <laughs> yells at Gabriella, and then Susan <laughs> tries to intervene. That's what you do as a writer. You know, you create this outrageous, you know, as a fiction writer, scenario, and as Gabriella said, you don't even know where it's going to go. So you create that scenario, you, you put these people in that situation, and then you watch them as they react. Now, who is to say whether that's a minor or major experience or how it is going to play out at the end and that's the beauty of it you know literature always has an open end and that openness is its power that is a fantastic note on which to end we could continue this discussion for a very long time but unfortunately we, we do have to close now just before we do i have a couple of announcements i wanted to mention on thursday the 7th of march uh we're going to be the, the center for the study of human rights is going to be marking International Women's Day slightly early in the sense that they have that day a panel discussion on the Istanbul Convention on Violence Against Women. Um, more information on that event uh, to which you're all very, very welcome. 
can be found on the Centre's website. I also wanted to mention that uh, the books uh, that have been mentioned today by Marina and Gabriella are available for purchase outside uh, this uh, room as is, uh, and also uh, further information is available about novel rights, um, Bered's uh, org organisation. So it remains to invite you to join me in thanking uh, our speakers today. I think you'll agree it's been an extraordinarily powerful session on the power of, of literature uh, in the promotion of human rights. Our speakers uh, have all uh, travelled uh, considerable distances uh, to be here today, so please, as I said, join me in thanking you.